Hello, welcome to the September 12th The Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fezenden from AMTS and your English language host. This monthly webinar series is dedicated to providing technical talks from internationally recognized educators for listeners around the world. Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations Italia co-hosts in Italian. Paula Torillo from Cordoba, Argentina translates and hosts a Spanish language webinar. Tom Long from Hemingway in China will be hosting in Mandarin. There will be a question and answer period immediately following the presentation. Listeners can submit queries through me or Elena in the morning webinar and me, Paula, or Tom in the evening webinar. Later, a complete recording of the archived webinars as well as the question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentations while driving, we have converted the videos into MP3 files that can be downloaded to your device for offline listening. Those podcasts can be found at the Ag Model Systems website under Resources. This month, we are pleased to host Dr. Adam Locke, an Associate Professor of Animal Science at Michigan State University. Originally from a dairy farm in the southwest of the United Kingdom, Dr. Locke received his Ph.D. from the University of Nottingham and completed a postdoc at that institution as well as at Cornell University. He had a research and teaching appointment at the University of Vermont where he came to understand that the United States could make good cheddar before moving to his current research and extension appointment at Michigan State University in the fall of 2009. There, his research and extension programs focus on both dairy production and human nutrition and health and the interface between these two disciplines. Dr. Locke joined me last week to record his talk to enable broadcast twice today at 9 a.m. and at 6 p.m. Adam will be with us live for the question period. For our audience, if you have questions during the presentation, please type them in the chat or Q&A window. Let us now begin the presentation. Uh, thank you, Marianne, for the introduction. Uh, so as she said today, I want to talk about uh, the research we've been doing the last probably six to seven years, uh, looking at individual fatty acids and uh, different groups of fatty acids, different ratios of fatty acids on lactate and dairy cows. I'm going to title the uh, talk today around myth and reality because I think there are maybe some misperceptions out there and hopefully that we can try and address today. Okay, so when we think about the impact of different fatty acids, we're really talking predominantly about these five fatty acids you can see highlighted here, palmitic, stearic, oleic, linoleic, and linoleic. These five fatty acids are going to make up the vast majority of fatty acids that you'll find in all of the diets uh, wherever we feed uh, lactate and dairy cows. One of our, our focus has been trying to understand the effects of these and different ratios of these, what, what effects they may have in the rumen, the small intestine and the mammary gland, and recently we've also been focusing somewhat on, on adipose tissue and energy partitioning as well. So we've focused on palmitic, stearic and oleic acids, so palmitic 16O, stearic 18O, 18-0, oleic uh, acid 18-1. And the reason we've been focusing on these is that under typical feeding situations, stearic acid is going to be the predominant fatty acid available absorption by the dairy cow because it's the end point of biohydrogenation, so the majority of that oleic 
linolenic, linolenic, uh, linoleic, linolenic that are being fed. Um, in the diet, most of that's going to be converted to spirit. So regardless of diets being fed, that's going to be the major uh, fatty acid that dairy cows consume. Also, as you can see here, these uh, free fatty acids represent the majority of fatty acids present in adipose tissue and in milk fat. So it, it warrants us focusing on these. And also, when we think about supplemental fat options, these uh, fatty acids are the, um, are the predominant fatty acids represented in the main categories of, of fat supplements. So I'd like to start off, I think all of these fatty acids, uh, palmitic, stearic, analyte, are important for dairy cow metabolism. Dairy cow uh, can utilize all of these fatty acids. One of the questions we've been asking ourselves is, is there an ideal ratio among palmitic steering analytic to um, try and optimize their utilization and opportunity for improving feed efficiency? And then also asking ourselves what other interactions are there with other dietary and indeed animal factors. As I said, these uh, fatty acids make up the majority of um, the majority of, of the fatty acids you find in. Uh, commercial fat supplements. I split the commercial fat supplements here predominantly into these three major categories, the long-standing calcium salts of palm oil or palm fatty acid distillate. It's uh, rich in uh, palmitic acid and oleic acid. We then have uh, the long-standing uh, saturated free fatty acid supplement that for a long time have predominantly been a mix of palmitic acid and stearic acid in different ratios. Probably the last 10 years now, we're seeing more of these what I call palmitic acid enriched supplements that are typically 80% plus in palmitic acid. Now, I think it's important to, to remember when we're talking about trying to make a choice between some of these different supplements, you know, uh, which of them may be best to utilize um, by the dairy cow. And this is a concept I came up with a couple years ago, which I think is important to think about that when each of these type of gap categories of fat supplements came out, none of them were initially designed with the cow in mind. They all simply took a, um, a byproduct that was available that was best to be used in the respective manufacturing technologies, whether it was salting or making uh, saturated fruits. I think it's only the last few years now that we're starting to say, well, maybe there are different ratios of these fatty acids that maybe utilize better by the cow, whether it's during digestion or metabolism or milk synthesis. Um, and that's kind of one of the areas we've been trying to focus on uh, recently. So hopefully today as we go through this talk, I'm going to hope to, to discuss and I hope answer uh, questions related to uh, do supplemental fatty acids impact NDF digestibility? Uh, do all fatty acids have the same digestibility? Does the effect of fat supplements on fatty acid digestibility matter? Uh, do all sources of supplemental fatty acids have the same impact on the yield of milk and milk components? Does it matter the level of milk production? Does, do cows respond differently to blends of different fatty acids? And then can different fatty acids impact energy partitioning? And then hopefully look at how should we feed uh, supplemental fatty acids to early lactation dairy cows, which is an increasingly emerging uh, area around lipid nutrition.
And really, I think my take home here is is to ask or question, are all fat supplements the same? Let's focus initially on digestibility, on fat, on different fatty acids, on NDF and fatty acid digestibility. This is a slide from Luar Montano a couple of years ago, where they were looking at effects of different fats on uh, total tract NDF digestibility. And it's kind of challenging the uh, the dogma or the the perception that when you feed supplemental fat, that you lower uh, NDF digestibility. And you can see here, without going into too much detail here, that when you look at these broad categories of different types of fat supplements, there's very li- there's really little or no overall effect on total tract NDF digestibility. When you look at these uh, fats that are rich in lauric and meristic, such as coconut oil or palm kernel oil, we know that some of those shorter chain saturated fats can be quite toxic on the bacteria. But when you look at some of these major categories, we don't really see any... Uh, positive or negative effect on total tract digestibility. And that's because most of the studies um, utilized in this um, data set was fed down at those uh, commercial levels. I think a lot of the early data that showed the effects of uh, fat on NDF digestibility were fed at uh, very high levels. So I'm going to be using this study as we go through from us, what a study that we published um, earlier this year. Uh, where we made uh, blends of free commercially available fat supplements to um, um, to alter the ratio of palmitic stearic and oleic acid in, in, in some fat blends. We fed this in a Latin square design study. And what we did here, we had a control treatment shown in black here, and then we fed 1.5% of fat supplements made from these, uh, from these into different blends so that we had an 80% palmitic. 40 palmitic, 40 stearic blend, and then a 45 palmitic, 35% oleic acid blend. And what you can see here, that as we increase the, add the palmitic acid supplement into the blend, we increase NDF digestibility, and we've seen this uh, consistently over a range of different studies now. When we added the palmitic and oleic treatment, we also increased NDF digestibility. But in this study, that was also associated with a slight reduction in feed intake as well. But what's interesting, though, in this study is when we pulled out half of the palmitic and added in uh, stearic acid here, we actually lowered NDF digestibility. And that's uh, it's fairly consistent when we're feeding a stearic acid-enriched fat. In some of our studies now, we either see a neutral or a reduction in NDF digestibility. But what you can see that is consistent here is the effect of palmitic acid intake on NDF digestibility. Here's just a nice summary of some data we did a couple of years ago that as you increase palmitic acid intake here on the x-axis, you see a nice linear increase in total tract NDF digestibility. And we also just recently saw that in uh, a fresh cow study as well, and we'll be talking more about that later, where we see some nice consistent increases in NDF digestibility when we add in a palmitic acid-enriched fat supplement in both the fresh cow and in um, in a high group during weeks free uh, and ten of lactation as well. And we're going to talk more about that study later on. So let's talk about fatty acid digestibility now, and I think it's um, important for me to sort of revisit where my own opinions have changed on this um, over the last few years. There's a rather fresh-faced uh, picture of me when I first moved to uh, Cornell to work with Dr. Bauman. 
But I think it was important to show that back then, back this, I think we uh, back in 2005, we published this uh, review of the literature where really we concluded, looking at the data in dairy dairy cows, that there was no reason to believe that fatty acids from different fat supplements would have different digestibilities. And you can see how we summarise the data here. But the last few years, based on re-evaluation of the existing data and a lot of our own data um, in the last few years, my own thinking and opinions have changed on this and hopefully moved as the science has moved forward as well. One of the first areas we worked on here was with Jackie Borman, who's now at uh, Purdue University, where we were looking at, at the available data with duodenal flows of fatty acids. And as you can see here, that as you increase the duodenal flow of total fatty acids, as you may somewhat expect, you see a, a reduction in total uh, fatty acid digestibility. This is all data from that patient area. With this duodenal data set, this allowed us to look at individual fatty acids as well. And the most striking um, example here was with duodenal flow of stearic acid, you see here on the x-axis, and the dramatic drop-off in total tract digestibility of stearic acid as you increase flow here. You see the, the, the line, the slope here, and dramatically going down. This is some of the first evidence we have, or maybe we do need to look more at um, these different fatty acids and also in particular the flow of these different fatty acids uh, going through the uh, small intestine. So here's a, a summary of that uh, initial slide I just showed from Jackie Borman here, now looking at total fatty acid intake here now and, and fatty acid digestibility. You can see the slight reduction. Uh, we've done two dose-response studies uh, the last few years, one with a stearic acid-enriched fat supplement. It was just over 90% stearic. And then a palmitic acid dose-response, again, about 90% palmitic acid supplement. And these two uh, uh, figures are, are shown here. In the middle here, we have the dose-response to stearic acid uh, supplementation. So as you increase fatty acid intake here on the x-axis, you're really driving more stearic acid. Uh, flow um, out of the rumen, and here and on the right here, um, the same study design, similar intakes, but now the intake is palmitic acid. And again, you see some dramatic differences here. This lines up with what I just showed previously here in the middle, that as you drive more stearic acid coming out of the rumen, we're, we're reducing total fatty acid digestibility. We see a slight reduction in total fatty acid digestibility with our palmitic acid supplement certainly nowhere near the reduction here is what we see here for stearic acid. And this is shown nicely in our blend study that I introduced earlier on. Uh, if you remember, we have the control, the palmitic enriched supplement, the palmitic stearic blend, and then the palmitic acid, palmitic acid and the lactic acid blend here in red. And as you can see here, we look at total tract fatty acid digestibility no effect of the palmitic supplement when we add it in at 1.5% dry matter. Interestingly, when we added in the palmitic and oleic, even though we're adding 1.5% more fatty acids here, we increase fatty acid digestibility. So maybe some evidence that oleic acid can help improve digestibility here. However, when we took out half of that palmitic and added in stearic, as you might expect from the previous slide, we see a reduction in total fatty acid digestibility here, in this case, of 10% of 
And then with looking at total track digestibilities, we can only look at then total 16 carbon here in the middle and total 18 carbon digestibilities because we don't have duodenal flows, so we can have to look at individual fatty acids. I think it's important to point out here that that added in that stearic acid here actually lowers the lowers um, or reduces 16 carbon digestibility here and 18 carbon digestibility. So it appears it's not just effect, having an effect on its own digestibility, but it's having an impact on other fatty acids. This is shown here nicely in the middle slide, in the middle figure here, looking at 16 carbon digestibility. If you just compare in blue the palmitic acid enriched supplement versus the palmitic and stearic, we're actually taking out half of the 16 carbons here, the palmitic acid in this treatment, and against stearic, but we get a threefold uh, greater reduction in digestibility here in the orange bar as we do the blue. We can look at this uh, using a Lucas test to try and estimate the actual supplemental fatty acid intake from uh, the actual blends and the actual fat supplements here. And in this case, we have to split it out across our two basal diets. We looked at our soy holes diets and our cottonseed diet. But I think this is interesting or helpful to look at in terms of, you know, is fatty acid digestibility of the fat supplement important to consideration? So just kind of showing pictorially here, if we assumed about a pound of intake of a supplemental fat in high-producing cow, a fairly high concentration in the diet, based on these digestibilities here, you can see some marked differences here in the actual amount of fatty acids absorbed here on the y-axis in both of these diets. These slopes I just brought up, that represents an estimation of the actual digestibility of fatty acids from the blends. So you can see in in this case, a 20% difference between the palmitic steric blend here in black and the palmitic and the lake acid blend here, here in blue. So um, we, we would suggest that fatty acid digestibility is certainly a significant um, consideration when choosing what type of fat supplements to use. So I mentioned the lake acid there. Um, and in that case, when we had the palmitic and the lake, then we saw a nice increase in, uh, or really an unexpected increase in digestibility. We followed that up in a couple of feeding studies and we saw similar improvements in digestibility. So earlier this year, actually at dairy science meetings this summer, we just um, um, presented an um, abstract where we actually infused abomasally uh, different doses of oleic acid so to mimic um, the flow of oleic acid coming out of the rumor. And you can see here on the x-axis, it was either 0, 20, 40, or 60 grams a day. So not huge amounts. But as soon as you increase some oleic acid flowing um, into the small intestine, you can see a nice increase here in fatty acid digestibility. And it's about an 8-unit improvement We get that 60 grams of dose. So this is an area of research we're following up now on. What's the ideal profile of fatty acids in the small intestine to improve digestibility? We're also doing some work around some uh, synthetic or exogenous emulsifiers and whether they can help improve digestibility as well. But certainly it would appear from our research that it's um, the total flow of fatty acids coming out of the rumen is important, but maybe even more so it's the profile or the pattern of those fatty acids that are leaving the rumen that are very important.
So another abstract we presented to dairy science this summer uh, was with Marin Weston, a student, a master's student, uh, with me, where we looked at uh, two commercially available fat supplements, a uh, palmitic and stearic acid prill, or then a palmitic acid enriched prill. You can see the profiles of those down here. We fed them uh, previous summer in, in a longer term feeding study. And you can see here, as we would expect, the palmitic acid treatment increased NDF digestibility compared to the control and the palmitic and stearic acid treatment. We saw the expected decrease in uh, fatty acid digestibility um, with the palmitic and stearic blend here based, based on what we would expect from our previous research. And then when we look at digestibility here, we see about a 10 or 11 unit improvement in an estimated uh, digestibility of the fatty acids from the palmitic treatment as opposed to our palmitic and steric treatment. We recently did some bomb calorimetry on that data, which I think is very interesting. And if we look at gross energy digestibility, it's significantly higher for the palmitic supplemented cows compared to the palmitic and steric supplemented cows. And in this study, when we look at actual digestible energy intake, again, we see it's uh, higher for the palmitic treatment versus the palmitic and steric. And if you look at the palmitic steric here, with, with that lower digestibility we got there, even though we fed a more energy-dense diet with that 1.5% palmitic steric uh, prill uh, in the diet, because of that lower digestibility, they did not consume any more digestible energy intake than the control cow. That's an important thing to consider when you're making choices of different facts. Okay, so let's move on now and look at that, the effect of dietary fatty acids on milk production and energy partitioning. And don't worry, we're not going to go through all of this data, but just simply to point out that our initial studies that we started doing back in uh, 2010, 2011, um, we started looking at, we had individual um, or very pure sources of palmitic and stearic acid. We did a series of studies uh, with those. Um, important to point out these were about 98, 99% pure uh, supplements. They're so not commercially available supplements, but this is what got us sort of working down this area of looking at palmitic, stearic, and malic acids. <clears throat> Just to summarize those initial studies, <clears throat> this is work I did in conjunction with. Uh, uh, Mike Allen um, here at MSU, and we use this model uh, looking at the relationship between preliminary milk yield and treatment responses because one of the first questions we wanted to know was, well, if you feed either of these fatty acids, do we see a response? Importantly, does that response, um, is that similar across different levels of milk yield? So our first study was a control treatment compared to our pure source of palmitic acid. And just simply, you can see here that as you um, increased, uh, as you added palmitic acid into the diet, we saw an increase in milk fat yield. And I'm sure many of you have tried that type of um, treatment and seen those responses. Importantly, those res responses were independent of level of milk production. So, didn't matter what level of milk production we saw a nice uh, bump up in milk. Our second study, we did a control versus uh, stearic acid, so no added fat, but fat versus stearic acid. 
And in this study, this is an interesting study, in one of the periods we saw a nice production response. We didn't see it in the second period, which, yeah, which is interesting. But overall, we saw a response as you increased uh, preliminary milk yield. Those higher yielding cows responded more positively to the spheric acid. So both of these studies, there's no added fat versus either palmitic acid or spheric. The last study then was a direct comparison between palmitic acid and spheric acid. So even though we saw this increase in milk yield here, with the no added fat, it's important to point out here when we did the direct comparison between palmitic and spheric, we also saw the improvement in milk fat yield with palmitic acid over spheric acid this time. And results were independent of level of So we've done a series of studies now, many studies looking at uh, palmitic acid using uh, predominantly now commercially available palmitic, so anywhere from about 80 to 90% palmitic acid. So similar, to, similar as I showed with NDF digestibility earlier, there's a very nice response. As you drive more palmitic acid intake into the dairy cow, we see a nice increase in total milk fat. Um, so the more palmitic you can get into the cow, the more uh, milk fat yield you're getting. It's around 20-25% response. Um, so it's not, it's not certainly not an all or nothing situation that I've heard proposed sometimes. There's still other uh, palmitic acid that's been absorbed that's available to be utilized for other purposes. And earlier this year, we published a long-term feeding study where we fed, a couple summers ago, a palmitic acid-enriched supplement, about 85% palmitic, over a 10-week period during the summer. And you can see by the first after the first week here, we're looking at energy-corrected milk. We consistently saw about a 4.5 kilo improvement, so was a 10 or 11 pound improvement in energy-corrected milk throughout that 10-week of feeding. The reason we did a 10-week study here is that some have proposed that after three or four weeks, you'd lose the effect of palmitic acid enrichment in the diet on milk fat and energy-corrected milk. But clearly, as you can see here, these responses um, are consistent across the longer time frame as well. What was interesting in this 10-week uh, feeding study here is that we had half the cows, in the, about half the cows with premium paras, so first lactation heifers, or we have multi-parous cows as well. And you can see here when we look at energy-corrected milk, um, we've got an increase in energy-corrected milk in both the heifers and in the multi-parous cows, but it, the increase was greater for the multi-parous cows than it was the heifers. And I think one of the reasons for that is when we look at body weight change here or body weight gain, um, palmitic acid did not increase body weight gain in the, in the multi-parous cow. Importantly here, it also did not decrease body weight gain, which is again is something I hear people claim sometimes, but we've not really seen that at all in uh, the majority of our studies. But in this case, in the heifers, palmitic uh, acid increased body weight gain to a greater extent um, than the control cows as well. So some nice responses there, and some of this energy partition certainly makes a lot of sense. So if I show you that the study that I showed earlier on that we did this last uh, previous summer and just presented back in June, where we had the control treatment, we had a commercial palmitic steric fat, or we had a commercial high palmitic acid treatment. If you look at energy-corrected milk, uh, quite a big increase in energy-corrected milk, went 
right from the plummetic versus the plummetic spirit. Fat yield higher as well. Interestingly, fat yield was not higher in this treatment compared to the control. <clears throat> so then if we look at body weight change, uh, there's actually no significant differences here. Certainly, again, no evidence that that plummetic acid-enriched treatment is lowering uh, body weight change or body weight gain or losing body weight gain compared to these other treatments. Now, if we go back to that blend study that I uh, introduced earlier on, where we had our palmitic acid enriched, our palmitic spirit, and our palmitic malaic blends, and we look at energy corrected milk, I think it's important, first of all, to point out here that um, all three treatments increase energy corrected milk, but the energy corrected milk gain was greatest for that high palmitic treatment, and that was predominantly because of increased milk fat yield here compared to the other two treatments. Again, the palmitic acid treatment is not altering body weight change compared to the control or the palmitic spirit. But again, what was interesting when I talked about this study um, earlier on, the oleic acid in here clearly looked like it was helping improve um, fatty acid digestibility. But also in this study, we saw that it also increased body weight gain in these um, pretty high producing dairy cows. Um, so it's interesting when we think about this treatment, these cows in this study, on average, ate a little bit less than the other treatment. But compared to control, they gain, they produce more milk, and they actually produce and gain more body weight. So en energy partitioning, energy capture there, started to intrigue us, particularly this difference between palmitic and oleic acid. I think a lot of the data we've uh, shown here at, under current situations, I probably wouldn't be um, looking at a palmitic stearic type blend here or having the stearic acid in there. But we are very interested in um, palmitic acid and oleic acid here. And it started to uh, bring us to sort of ask ourselves, well, what about if we altered the ratio of palmitic and oleic acid? Is that a way we can maybe shift energy partitioning? Um, whether that be between uh, milk production and body weight, what impact may that have in um, high producing dairy cows and then also in, in fresh cows as well? So this is the study we presented uh, two summers ago where we started to play around with these blends. So just quickly here, these different numbers here, 80-10 down to 60-30. As you see here, that's the ratio of palmitic acid to oleic acid. So the 80% palmitic, 10 oleic down to 60 palmitic, 30 oleic. So still lower than what you would find in a traditional calcium salt, but we're seeing some nice changes. We fed the all... All cows in this study were fed 1.5% of, of these different blends. You see no differences in feed intake across these. But, all, but you again, consistent to what we saw pre previously, as we increase the oleic acid here, we see an increase in body weight change or body weight gain. You can see why this dropped off here, you see that. What we had in this study is we had cows with different levels of milk production and in both of these treatment and both of these variables here we didn't see a treatment by production interaction. But when we started looking at milk production, we started to see some interesting differences. So first of all we have what we call a low group, medium group and high group. But please take those uh that the those uh that nomenclature uh, somewhat with a grain of salt because as you can see even our low group of cows were still around 45 kilos so nice to have. So we had some nice breaks in these different cow groups of cows 
Very similar days in milk, which is cows with different uh, levels of milk production. And what you will see here is that that lower group of cows responded better to the high palmitic, got more energy milk with the high palmitic compared to the higher allele. However, in that very high group of cows that started up around over 50 kilos in milk, look at, look at that big increase we see um, in energy corrected milk as we move to the higher leg blend, that 60 30. So, a very nice increase there in milk production. Now, of course, these are, these are the type of studies where you want to um, do, do follow up studies and to make sure that these things hold true. And we just presented an abstract this summer. Uh, where we looked at just that 80-10 blend and the 60-30 blend. You can see overall energy corrected milk was a little bit higher for the 80-10 than it was the 60-30. But importantly, this study was designed to test specifically that effect of preliminary milk yield. So we went from about 20, about 30 kilo cows up to just under 70 kilo cows. And we saw a similar pattern to in that last study where those higher producing cows were producing more milk on the palmitic, the higher oleic blend, so the 60-30 blend, whereas those lower producing cows did better on the higher palmitic blend. Not as great a difference as we saw in the previous study, but certainly evidence that this holds true. And in post-peak cows here, maybe we should be looking at feeding different types of blends to different cows based on level of milk. So finally, I want to move into some of our work we've done in early lactation cows now. And I, I think this is a good way of introducing this. If you look back at some of the older literature and how people um, looked at some of the older literature, there was always a question about when should fat feeding or supplemental fat feeding begin. Um, and the conclusion back in the early 90s was that probably uh, fat should probably be left out of the diet immediately postpartum because a number of trials had shown and there is little benefit from feeding fat uh, during the first uh, two to three months of lactation. Um, and a lot of the responses were probably at that time due to compressions in feed intake. Um, and therefore any advantages that were gained uh, by increasing energy density were lost because of the lower feed intake. However, I think it's important to think about... Um, a lot of that early data was typically done with tallow or some other that sort of vegetable and vegetable-based fats that were fairly unsaturated in nature, but importantly fed at pretty high levels. Uh, and I think that um, fatty acid profile and the doses that were being fed is, is key there. But that really led to that initial dogma that um, don't feed supplemental fats to these early lactation cows that are in negative energy balance. They already are mobilizing body fat, so there's already a lot of fatty acids in, in the system. And that led to a kind of a fear, I think, of feeding supplements. So, yeah, let's go back here just quickly. So this is a study from Ron Butler that kind of shows that somewhat uh, quite nicely. Saw these treatment by time interactions. They were feeding a palmitic and stearic acid uh, blend here. And they only started to see some differences uh, after about week four on, on estimated uh, energy intake and then on milk production. We didn't see anything in that early lactation period. In a study that we, we did a few years ago where we fed a palmitic and stearic blend at 2% of uh, dietary uh, dry matter, 
um, and we looked at that across a couple of different forage NDF levels. Um, the Palmitic Spirit Blend did do a good job in terms of um, improving energy balance in those cows, um, losing less uh, body condition score, but losing that bod- less body condition score and improving energy balance was did come at the expense of lower peak nutrients, so we have to bear that in mind as well. So up until recently, oh sorry, yeah, let me just say here, and then when we think about this palmitic and steric um, question here, this is the study we showed where we had the low forage and the high forage diets, and in that lower forage they uh, lost milk and no effect. In the higher forage diet, this is from calving, the first month of lactation, whereas Bill Weiss, around the same time, a few years earlier, published a study where they fed um, the same supplement, palmitic steric supplement, uh, from about uh, three weeks of lactation onwards to over 100 days in milk. It actually showed that on the low forage, they increased milk production with the palmitic steric blend, and on the high forage, they had no effect. So this it made us interested in also in the effect of timing of when you feed that supplementation in that early lactation period. So while we've done a lot of work with um, palmitic acid and rich supplements up until recently, that had all been done in post-peak caps. So dairy science two summers ago, we presented our first study in fresh cows where we fed a commercially available palmitic acid supplement. Um, in the fresh periods of the first three weeks of lactation, either no added fat or 1.5% of palmitic acid treatment. And then we moved those cows onto a high diet in the peak period and then split those cows again so we could look at the overall effect of palmitic acid and the effect of when should we maybe start feeding palmitic acid. I'm going to run through some of this. Um, importantly here, so in that fresh period, you're only going to see two treatments here, either control or palmitic. When you go into the high period, that's going to split to four because we split these out. Importantly, no effect of feed intake of palmitic acid on feed intake. Certainly doesn't look like we're lowering feed intake. Again, you see that last week of that fresh period intake increase slows down. Maybe we should have moved these cows after two weeks of lactation in hindsight. No differences in, in uh, milk yield either in that fresh period. Again, uh, no differences in feed intake here. Really, the key thing to remember here is the black lines out here, the cows fed palmitic acid during this period, the red lines is cows fed the control diet. What you will see over here in um, just looking at milk yield now, that during this high period, those cows fed palmitic acid in this high period increased milk yield by 3.5 kilos compared to the control diet. When we look at milk fat yield and energy corrected milk, we see some nice increases in milk fat yield and in energy corrected milk, 4.7 kilos in that fresh period. Now, this milk fat yield response is quite higher than what we would see in a post-peak cow. you see some of the reasons for that, I think, in the next few slides. Those increases uh, continue in that high period. So again, we see over a, a 0.2 kilo improvement in fat yield and a similar 4.8 kilo improvement in energy corrected milk in that high period. So those cows that were fed palmitic acid throughout, from, from calving through 10 weeks here, averaged just over a 4.7 kilo improvement in energy corrected milk throughout that entire 10 week period. Now cows fed palmitic acid in that fresh period, again with that increased um, energy corrected milk, 
of milk fat yield. They did lose a bit more body weight, about 26 kilos more body weight than the cows fed the control, control diet. And that related itself to a slightly higher increase in NIFA. But again, none of these NIFAs are really um, what I would call areas of concern from a clinical or health issue area. You can see they're all going down as well. Again, body weight, start, cows start to stabilize as you go here. And this just resulted in just a 10 kilo difference in this high period between cows fed the control or cows fed palmitic acid. No effect of NIFA, sorry, no effect of NIFA in this high period. So when you look at actual digestible energy intake, you can see that we're increasing digestible energy intake because we have um, digestibilities across this study. Digestible energy intake is higher for palmitic treatment in the fresh period, and it's higher in that high period as well. So because we actually have uh, digestible energy intake, we can actually have actual measures of energy balance rather than just estimates. Here, as we expect from the energy corrected milk responses, big differences in milk energy output between our palmitics and our control cows. But because we're, again we're getting that improvement in um, digestible energy intake um, and increases here in milk energy output, we're really not having we're having no effect in this uh, peak period here when these cows are coming back into positive energy balance. You see all of these cows are coming back to positive energy balance around about week seven of lactation. Okay? But of course this difference in this stress period is of, of interest and it can be of a concern depending on what type of cow you're feeding, what your overall uh, nutritional strategies might be during that period. That led us to... Um, Skip through that. That led us to look at um, a follow-up study with that, based on what we saw with this palmitic acid feeding here, and based on what we saw in that high group of cows uh, when we had our different blends of palmitic and oleic acid. If you remember, in our post-feed cows, whenever we fed oleic acid, we've seen increases in body weight. That led us to ask, well, in a fresh cow. Could that maybe translate into these cows fed higher oleic acid levels, losing less body weight? And then what impact would that have on milk production? So we did a blend study in the three, in the first three weeks of lactation here now. I'm just showing these here. Initially, I want to show you that this 80-10 blend. So 80% palmitic, 10 oleic. Very similar to the previous fresh cow study with a commercial um, fat supplement, um, palmitic acid-rich supplement. <clears throat> What's nice here is that the responses here to the palmitic here are very, very similar to our previous study, which is nice that these responses are consistent. As you can see here, red versus the, the red is the high palmitic, the black is the control. No differences in feed intake, about a four and a half kilo improvement in energy corrected milk for our pump 8010 treatment, and they lost about 25 kilos more body weight. Again, very consistent. So in this study, we had the 80-10 blend, and then we moved that down, and we had a 70-20, and then we have a 60-30 blend of palmitic and oleic acid. So if you look at feed intake, this kind of caught us by surprise. As we added in more oleic acid into our fat blends, we actually got increases in dry matter intake. Some people would have been concerned with a, you know, a higher oleic treatment here that you may get. Um, reductions, but in this in feed intake, in this study, we've got increases 
And this lines up nicely, I'm not showing the data here now, but this lines up nicely with lower plasma nefa and higher plasma insulin with those higher allaic treatments. It kind of helps explain why feed intake may be higher. Uh, by week two here, energy corrected milk, those higher allaic treatments was as, as good as it was on the higher palmitic treatment, as you can see out here. So all three of those treatments improved energy corrected milk compared to control. Interestingly, those higher allaic blends, the cows didn't, didn't lose anywhere near the body weight is what those high palmitics did. And in fact, the, the, the 60-30 here and the 70 very similar body weight losses to those control cows. So it's looking that as we increase the oleic acid in, in a palmitic and oleic blend, we can get more feed intake, we can get as good a milk production response as that high palmitic, but with those cows losing less body weight, which may well be a very nice um, proposition uh, when we're looking at dietary strategies for a fresh cow. What was interesting, what was interesting here is when we followed these cows during their, their peak peak of lactation when they were all fed a common diet. So our treatments that I just showed you were all only fed in that first period, the first three weeks. But as we fed them for the next seven weeks, all on a common diet, those three treatments, the cows on those treatments that saw the fat blends down here, they maintained over a four kilo improvement in energy corrected milk in this peak period, even though they were all fed the same diet. So this concept of what we're feeding in the first period can really have a long-term impact on these cows as you go forward. And those changes in body weight are shown here nicely. It is worth important, um, pointing out that even though those that high palmitic group did lose more body weight here, they start to it starts to come back up and they catch up with the, the control here. But certainly the swing um, the changes in body weight is much um, much less for those higher leg treatments. So I think it, when I think about, and just to wrap up here, um, traditionally we used to just think of supplemental fat or supplemental fat, and it was just supplying energy. Um, certainly fatty acids are, are a good source of energy, but there's also a lot of non-caloric effects now that we need to consider on a whole host of different digestive and metabolic processes. So what I would say if anyone's looking at considering different fat supplements in the future, Number one thing to consider is the fatty acid profile of that supplement. I think that's going to be the first factor in determining the response to it. So if you're looking to make some decision on whether to feed fat supplements and which ones to feed the cows, <clears throat> first of all, I'd say, well, identify what you're trying to achieve, then design that your nutritional program, including fatty acid supplementation, around those um, objectives. You need to evaluate the effects then uh, on production performance, um, you know, which cows are you feeding, what type of diet are these being fed on. It's not just on the production performance, that there's a lot of these what I call tangible factors that you can't necessarily measure in the tank, whether that's energy balance, body weight, body condition, reproduction, etc. Next slightly out of order here, but these are just my summary or take home points here. Sorry about that. <clears throat> so our understanding, I think, hopefully I've shown um, our understanding of fatty acid digestion metabolism has advanced significantly in the last few decades, and I think we're hopefully going to continue to make those advancements, make those strides. I think where we are with fatty acids now is kind of where 
and we were going to prove protein to amino acids a few years ago. So I think we need to go away from just talking about fat and now talking about different fatty acids. Hopefully I've shown you some work today showing how different fatty acids um, and different combinations of fatty acids, how cows respond differently to these. I think we need to consider the effects that fatty acids will have on in the rumen and in the small intestine and in the mammary gland and the energy partitioning of the green tissue. Um, I'd say digestibility is a good indicator of inclusion and not of a supplement, um, assuming you don't have markedly affect feed intake. I think we now do need to uh, consider the use of supplemental fatty acids in that fresh period of, a, of an early lactation dairy cow. Um, I think some new research now does suggest that fatty acid supplementation increases performance there. Um, and now I think our opportunity and challenge going forward is going to be how can we um, apply this knowledge in the feeding and management of today's cow. My current recommendations based on, on this summary here is I'd be looking at using a um, blend of palmitic and oleic acid depending on what um, type of cow I'm having, what type of level of milk production is early lactation. But I'd be looking at some blends of different of uh, palmitic and oleic acid. So, I have a lot of people to uh, thank, obviously, all, all the research group and all my lab members here. Um, this Michigan Alliance for Animal Agriculture has been a huge help in supporting a lot of the research we've done there. A whole host of different companies. I appreciate the support that they provide in terms of helping support students and, and some studies here. And uh, with that, I think I'm finished. Uh, there's my email address if anyone has any questions or comments. We have a couple uh, of website and a Facebook page um, as well where we keep up, keep some of this um, updated on there as well. So I think with, with that, Mariana, I'm going to pass it back to you and uh, hopefully that stimulated some some discussion for some questions now or hopefully giving you some food for thought going forward. So thank you very much. First of all, I want to introduce you to our next speaker. Um, it is Dr. Trevor DeVries from, he's a professor and Canada Research Chair in Dairy Cattle Behavior and Welfare. He will be joining us to discuss using knowledge of cow eating behavior to optimize nutritional management. As with this webinar, it is going to be offered with two opportunities to join, a 9 a.m. and a 6 p.m. Um, webinar. I want to remind you that we have a second webinar series going right now. It is called The Beef Nutritionist. I would like to invite you to join us tomorrow. Dr. Jonas Sartori from Texas Tech will speak on September 13th on reasons, methods, and moments to improve fiber digestibility in cattle, dairy cattle diets. We'll finish up for the year on October 10th with Dr. Nicholas DiLorenzo from the University of Florida. His research focuses on minimizing the environmental impact of feeding beef cattle. Our beef webinars will be presented in English and Spanish with Paula Torillo co-hosting from Argentina. We're thankful to our series sponsors, AMTS, AB Vista for the English language webinar and Rock River Lab and Bio4 in Argentina for the Argentinian webinar. Again, the Beef Nutritionist webinars are held at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. If you're interested, please email webinars at agmodelsystems.com. 
And finally, I want to thank my co-hosts and the people who helped make this possible, AMTS USA and Global, and Paula Torillo in Argentina, with a special thank you to Rock River Laboratory for sponsoring the Spanish language webinar, Tom Long from Hemingway in China, and Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations Italia in Parma, Italy. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsors, Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition Through Amino Acids, makers of Agipro-L, and Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cow health. Our silver sponsors are Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s, Cumberland Valley Analytical Services, Kemen, featuring USA Lysine, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, R&D Life, Life Sciences, and AB Vista. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Jeffo, Quality Liquid Feeds, Adiseo, Origination Inc., and Novita, makers of Novameal. I am going to open the floor up to questions. I'm going to play his responses to the questions this morning. If you have questions, go ahead and write them in the question and answer window. We have Elena Bonfante, also from Italy, who is going to ask questions, and Vadim Bakchevnikov. Elena, can you, are you successful at being able to talk? Marianne, can you hear me? I can. Oh, Excellent. great. <laughs> I'm not worried. Okay, no, I uh, thank you, Dr. Locke, for your presentation. It was very interesting. And uh, my question was about the uh, fat influence on reproduction and uh, if there is any uh, combination for fat supplementation if your goal is to increase reproduction performances. Okay, thank you. Um, it faded away there, but I think it's around reproduction. Um, when Ian Lean's group a couple of years ago did a meta-analysis of the available data in early lactation cows, overall there was a beneficial effect of fat supplementation on reproduction. Um, obviously there's many different potential modes of action there, whether energy balance or direct effects on some uh, hormones or metabolites. Um, there's obviously a lot of interest now in the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids as well. Um, but uh, overall, I'd say in general, there's a beneficial effects of uh, fat supplementation on uh, reproduction, um, especially if you're... Um, I think the, the big unknown still right now, is it more of a, a calorie energy type issue or is leaning more, I think, to certain fatty acids having specific effects as well? Um, I see there's a written question, maybe that was from you as well, about palmitic acid on reproduction. Um, both the studies which we used, high palmitic acid, uh, our focus there wasn't uh, reproduction markers. Both of those studies had about 50, 55 cows in the study, so 12 to 15 cows per treatment. So we weren't designed there around a, um, a reproduction type standpoint. Um, Obviously, with the high palmitic uh, feeding in that early lactation, they did lose a bit more body weight, um, but they also gave more milk. So there, there's a balance. There's always a balance there. Um, you know, and energy is neither uh, created nor destroyed. So um, we have to find the right balance um, 
there, but uh, you know, maximizing peak milk yield is going to have some long-term effects. Um, certainly in that study, none of the cows were, you know, there was no evidence of any greater health disorders. Uh, plasma nephro was a little bit higher, but uh, not markedly. So certainly that whole group of cows weren't um, in a level of concern where our vet diagnostic lab would say um, they were they were they were very high nephro. So um, I, I, I don't get concerned about the palmitic acid supplementation on reproduction early lactation. Of course, you hear different things from industry. You know, some people say they tried it. Reproduction wasn't so good. Other people say they tried it. It's the best reproduction they've had. Um, about stearic acid, um, I, didn't, I don't think I showed that slide today, but um, when we fed a palmitic steric blend in fresh cows, um, we certainly uh, were able to improve energy balance. Um, they didn't mobilize as much body weight. They didn't lose as much body condition in early lactation. But that came at the expense of milk yield, so they peaked about 10 kilos less in milk. Um, so you know you have to um, you have to weigh weigh up these different things. What's the goal of the nutrition program? Um, what type of cows do you have calving in, um, and etc. So um, I don't know any specific negatives around around those there. Okay, thanks, Adam. Yes. Yeah, so um, Elena's question. She did have a reproductive aspect to that. She is in an airport, so that's why I muted her after she asked the question. The other question that we you responded to was actually from Jeff Schwartz at the Nutrition One. Is there known effects of palmitic okay. acid on reproduction? Elena is leaving us because she has to board her plane. So um, I'm going to thank Elena for joining us. So the next question I'm going to do is, Jim Aldrich, um, can mm. you comment on the effects of C16 on um, ceramide synthesis and its effect on insulin resistance? Hi, Jim. Uh, that's a good question. Um, so that would be data that will be generated from uh, uh, McFadden's lab at Cornell. Um, some of that is generated from samples from our palmitic acid study that they analyzed. Uh, they presented at Dairy Science, I think, last year or this year. Um, yeah, there is evidence that uh, palmitic acid does increase some ceramides, some different ceramides. It's not something I'm particularly uh, very knowledgeable on. Um, obviously, there's a relationship between ceramide synthesis and insulin resistance. And certainly in the fresh cow, one of the concerns is if you may be making that cow more insulin resistant is that one of the reasons why you know she's um, mobilizing more body weight so that that, that, that story those, those things fit together quite nicely in that fresh cow certainly in that uh, post peak cow um, if you can help prioritize um, or partition more energy or more nutrients to the mammary gland I think that's probably a good thing um, you know helping to avoid um, excessive weight gain um, certainly when we feed palmitic acid in a, a mid and late lactation cow, we, we still see weight gain and, uh, typically we don't see any less weight gain than in the non, uh, in our negative controls. Um, in that fresh cow, it's a, that's an interesting piece. You know, of course, ceramides is only one piece of a big puzzle around that metabolism of the fresh cow we've been looking with. Uh, Andreas Contreras in our vet school here more around some of the 
um, oxylipids and uh, other inflammatory um, markers around adipose tissue metabolism. So I think the ceramide story is a, an interesting one there. Um, it doesn't, right now, I don't think it concerns me. Um, it kind of makes sense that what some of the production effects we're seeing and why we're seeing some of those effects on, on those ceramides. But uh, certainly something we need to look at more in, more in the future around different fatty acids. And uh, I think that adds to the sort of excitement around this uh, potential for feeding different fatty acids for different purposes to the dairy cow, um, depending on what, what type of effect you may, you may wish to elicit there. Um, so that also... If I just take over here a bit, um, Marion, that there's a question there kind of related to that by uh, Delan there. Um, palmitic acid and insulin resistance, your opinion, please. I think I've answered, hopefully I've addressed that one um, okay as well. Um, of course, there, there's a balance in all of this, and, and, and we're, we're learning a lot more now. Um, hopefully one of the big take-homes here is that... Uh, uh, Fat isn't fat. Um, certainly, if you're talking about supplemental fat, you know they're not all they're not all the same. It all depends on the individual fatty acids. But um, you know, when we talk about insulin resistance as well, we also have to think of you know most of the time we measure that as a systemic you know whole body thing. Um, one of my collaborators, Andreas Contreras, just had a paper published now where he's actually looking more at insulin resistance at the adipose tissue level rather than at a systemic level, and uh, I think that's going to be important um, as we go forward as well. But um, you know, when we look at our whole cow data, it's not—we're certainly not throwing those cows. You know, um, I guess a non-technical term would be out of whack in that early lactation period. Yes, they're losing some more body weight, but they're putting that into more milk. Um, so if you can manage that. Um, and maybe there are some different options, like I showed with some of our palmitic and oleic blends in that early lactation. If we can manage that, um, then it still, I think, can be potentially be a very positive for the entire lactation. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, so that was a question from Anik Deliquis. And I love this new platform because I can dismiss questions as we tackle them, and it keeps my um, my my board a little less cluttered. Um, from Mohammed, he says, thank you for your web nice webinar. Do you suggest using any type of fatty acid in tra the transition period? What about W6 fatty acids? And do you believe increasing W6 to W3 ratio can improve immune system and reduce um, reproductive and mastitis? RP, I'm not sure. Yeah, and mastitis. Yeah. Well, there's an entire webinar just on that question, I think. We'll invite um, you back. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of research going into those areas right now. Um, obviously, the Florida group have done a lot, some other groups. I just saw a paper come ahead of print on Journal Dairy Science yesterday um, around immune function and omega-6, omega-3 balance. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there. I don't think we have a lot of data right now. One of the big challenges for the delivery of the omega-6 or omega-3s um, is can we get them past the rumen? Um, and when we do feed them, can we avoid them having negative effects in the rumen, whether that's on um, you know, milk fat depression or, or, or some other effects? Um, 
So sometimes you have to balance that out with uh, energy balance effect versus a direct effect of the fatty acid. Um, my thoughts on omega-6 or omega-3, I think, would depend somewhat on what type of diet you're feeding. Obviously, here in North America, where we're very heavy omega-6 feeding, very heavy linoleic acid, I see that I see some potential there for delivery of omega-3s. Um, maybe omega-6 in certain key times there, but I think some of those omega-3s. Um, but then we also need to think about what, what omega-3s are we talking about. Are we talking about linolenic acid, or are we talking more sort of the fish oil fatty acids, EPA, DHA. When I look at the human literature, I think it's really that EPA, DHA where seem to be the big players there. And I think there is some interesting uh, I mean, exciting data in that area, um, certainly around omega-3s and immune function. Um, and that there's different individual data around that. You know, a big boost to that area, I think, would be if we can develop some... Uh, some nice uh, methods to, to deliver them more consistently um, to the small intestine of the cow. Because um, that cow then, I think if we can deliver them there, is going gonna, is gonna to want to um, utilize them for you know, her, some of these uh, metabolic processes that uh, Mohammed's asking about. So there's another, there's an anonymous attendee there says, are there known effects of 18.2, on repro? What about EPA and DHA? Do these fats affect, uh, do these fat affect milk and fat yield? So I think I've addressed that mostly. You know, again, overall beneficial effects on repro typically with feeding fats. And I think that's if you've been feeding beans or, or different dry supplemental fats. Um, obviously, the more polyunsaturates you feed in the diet of the cow, you're going to have to be careful about um, milk fat yield, maybe drops in dry matter intake. Um, you know, obviously one of the things you don't want to do in early lactation is feed a more energy dense diet and then the cow eats less of that diet. Um, that can often be a negative. Um, I think the longer chain you go in those polyunsaturates, um, the more potential they have for um, affecting rumen biohydrogenation that may lead to milk fat depression. So, you know, one of the challenges then is if you do drop milk fat in that early lactation period, going up into peak and you see a reproduction benefit is that down to the specific fatty acids that were being fed or is that an energy sparing effect from dropping milk fat um, so um, so there's a there's a balance there as well so I'm very I'm excited particularly so personally I'm very excited about the omega-3 thing there and I think there's a lot of research we need to do there um, to understand the the effects it may have on immune function, reproduction, um, but we also need to do a better job at um, developing, I think, uh, some delivery mechanisms. Certainly the calcium salts can deliver uh, some of those fatty acids past the rumen, but, uh, um, you know, I think there's always room for improvement in anything we do. Okay, thanks. Um, let's see, I have a question in the chat from Vera Diana Daly, and she said, did you observe some negative effects of dietary C16-1 on milk fat yield or percentage? Do I see negative effects? No. I mean, we've ran 13 or 14 studies feeding high palmitics now across fresh peak and mid and late lactation cows, and we always see a, an increase in milk fat content, milk fat yield. Um, 
it's not, on average is about a 20% transfer across. Um, you know, that, that still leaves other, the remainder of the palmitic available for other purposes in the cow. Um, in that fresh and peak period is actually where we've seen the greatest increases in milk fat yield. But of course, as we, as we were discussing earlier, in that fresh cow, that also has came at some expense of um, some extra fat body mobilization as well. But we've never seen a negative effect. Um, related to that, I see another question there that says, does high palmitic acid cause late lactation cows to gain weight or does it primarily drive energy corrected milk? It, yeah, I'll, I'll, so that's a good question. Those, those mid and late lactation cows are still gaining weight. They're not gaining any more body weight than uh, non-supplemented cows. But the majority of that extra um, nutrients being provided is going to go to increasing energy corrected milk. So one uh, myth that's out there is that feeding palmitic acid um, in mid and late lactation cows, the cows lose body weight. We, that doesn't stack up across our our, uh, our our literature, especially the last five or six years, I think, where we do a much better job at doing body weight measurements on cows through multiple measurements every week. Um, and I think I showed it in the slide there where we had the multi-paris and the premium-paris cows um, along in that 10-week supplementation study. You still see they're gaining weight in those multi-paris cows, but they're not gaining any additional body weight. Um, but overall, the amount of dietary energy going into the mammary gland is, is always going to be greater because of that energy-corrected milk response. Yeah. Hi. Okay, I have many questions here. Uh-oh. Some of them are from William. Uh, question number one. Is it true that oleic acid is more related to body reserves in dairy cows? So, yeah, we've done a, few, a series of studies there now. Um, we've always seen um, increases in weight gain when we fed oleic acid in post-peak cows. Um, as I showed earlier, in very high-producing cows, they did gain some more body weight, but they also increased milk yield more. And then in the fresh cow, we have that very interesting, I think very exciting results where the more oleic in the fresh cow, they ate more, gave more milk and lost less body weight than when we than a control or, and uh, less less lost less body weight than the higher palmitics. So there does seem to be an effect there of oleic acid. Um, we think on insulin. Uh, we always see higher insulin levels when we feed higher oleic acid, and we think that helps. That that would be part of the story around why we see greater uh, body weight gain or loss less body weight loss. So. There's certainly a, a, a consistent pattern there with the high, higher oleic acid blends um, that we've utilized in our, in our research. Um, but again, important to remember in those very high producing cows, when we had those 120, 130 pound plus cows, um, they also had a significant increase in milk production. And we have that across two different studies now compared to a higher palmitic study, a higher palmitic treatment, sorry. Great. May I go on, Marianne? Okay, please stop me whenever you want. Okay, go. Okay, uh, another question from Leonardo. When you talk about fat supplementation, do you refer to protective fats? Is the effect of fats in the diet ingredients like cotton seed the same? 
It's a good question. I, I think I heard most of it. Um, so, well, cottonseed is primarily linoleic acid, so it's not oleic acid. Um, so that, there's a big difference there. We have a couple studies where we fed higher cottonseed in the diet and higher dietary fatty acids, and we see some good responses to that. But um, what we're trying to uh, determine right now is when in our oleic acid feeding stage, is that a specific effect of oleic acid or is it an effect of 18 carbons fatty acids in general? So it, could it be stearic acid? Could it be linoleic acid? Uh, at the moment, I'm thinking it's more of an, a, a direct effect of oleic acid. Um, then we're, we're going to carry out some research to look at that. But yeah, I don't think you can say like the oleic acid type treatments that we've used, I wouldn't say that that is the same as cottonseed because it's unsaturated fat. They're, they're different fatty acids. And as we learn more and more here, there's certainly big differences between individual fatty acids. So I think it's an oleic acid effect per se. Um, but notwithstanding, though, I still think there's a, there's a good role for ingredients such as cottonseed um, in the diet to maybe help drive increased uh, dietary preformed fatty acid intake, which can maybe help with milk production and milk, milk fat yield. Great. And the, la the next question from Ariel. Uh, when you used the 70 to 30 palmitic to oleic acid ratio, did, which kind of product did you use? So, well, in all those blends when we have uh, the 70, it was a 70, 20 and a 60, 30, they were a blend of a palmitic acid enriched krill alongside a calcium salt of palm oil or palm fatty acid distillate. Um, and we use some different products in, in each of those, but, um, you know, it, it, I would look for a good quality uh, palmitic acid enriched krill and then a good quality calcium salt. And then based on the fatty acid profile of them, it's quite easy to, to match those, blend, those, um, those blends that we utilize. Uh, the, the question was related. Um, the, the, he wanted to know if they, the, you used calcium salts. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So for to get the increased oleic acid in those blends, yes, it was a calcium salt of palm oil or a calcium salt of PFAD. Yes. And then that was blended with a palmitic acid enriched krill to get the the final blend with the fatty acid profile we wanted. Um, but yes, we used a calcium salt product. Perfect. Or products. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Tom. Are you able to um, use your mic? Yes. Can you hear Good. me? Yes. Go ahead. Hey, Dr. Locke, uh, thank you for the presentation. Um, I probably uh, have a couple questions. The first one is um, for high forage and low forage uh, cows, so would the um, consideration be different? You know, um, do we have to test the fat acid in the forage? Um, I think there's a couple different questions there. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's always good to know what, the, if you're talking about testing the fatty acid content of your feeds, I think it's always good to know what the fatty acid content of the forages is, um, especially if you're in a pasture situation where it can be quite variable. Um, but if you're talking about feeding high forage versus lower forage diets, um, 
if it, if it's in the fresh cow there, you know, I think you have to balance that up is with uh, getting good room and fill in those early in those fresh cows, um, but making sure you get enough nutrients, enough energy to them. Uh, we did one study, Mike Allen and I, where we fed a palmitic and stearic acid krill um, in high and low forage diets. And actually the fat in that case had some better effects in the higher forage diet. Um, but with that higher stearic product, um, they lost less body weight, but it was at the expense of milk production. And I think I talked about that in some of the, the recorded questions earlier on. At some point here, it's a, it's a balance. You know, energy is neither created nor destroyed. So um, it, a lot of this depends on what's the nutritional goals um, on that farm or of that group of cows and how those cows are, are calving in. So, you know, some body weight loss is probably inevitable, but it's all about balance. You don't want too much, but um, I don't think you want to um, negate all body weight loss if then it comes at the expense of peak milk yield that then has a longer term effect. Um, Certainly in mid and late lactation cows, we and others have research showing that, you know, we certainly don't need to feed the, you know, higher starch diets in those cows when they don't need all those glucose precursors. And you can, you can feed a much higher forage fiber or byproduct fiber diet along with, say, a palmitic acid enriched fat and actually get more energy corrected milk in many cases because, um, and minimize body weight gain, uh, which can be very good in that mid and late lactation cow. Thank you very much. Um, can I ask another question? Yes, Tom, why don't you ask another question and then I have a question that I'll ask. Go ahead. Okay. So my other question is, um, you showed the difference between uh, lower production, medium production, and high production uh, cows in, in the response to uh, uh, different profiles of FA. Um, the question comes when... Um, between winter and the summer, when in the summertime you have um, heat stress, so that a medium or high production cow may become a uh, low production cow in the summertime when it's uh, really hot weather. Does that, uh, you know, um, play a role in, 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 the, in the conclusion or is that a factor? Yeah. Well, well I mean, it's <laughs> The honest answer to that is I don't really know. Um, you know, I mean, a cow over the course of a, of a couple of seasons is going to change in her own milk production anyway, but I think you're probably talking about different cows. Um, you know, I think any of those fat blends in general in summer are going to be beneficial, especially if those cows are dropping some intake in those hotter periods. Uh, we had that one study where I showed a 10-week feeding study where we fed a high palmitic acid krill. And we got very good responses to that. That was run for 10 weeks during a Michigan summer, uh, two summers ago now. And that was very hot. And, um, you know, we actually probably got better responses to that high climatic krill then than what we may have done in the cooler months. Um, whether, you know, whether that's different with the different blends, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think they would all be beneficial there, but... Um, you know, I think I would be sticking with what what's the average production in that group of cows that I'm feeding, um, mm -hmm. and then that would probably dictate what type of blend I would be utilizing. But I think they would all be beneficial uh, to a large part in a in a in a hotter period of the of the year. 
Thank you. So certainly it's a question to find out. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Um, let's see, I have a question in my window. Um, this is from Salem Oxley. Um, in a long-term supplementation, two years or more, what effect what effect do you think is going is going to have on the nutrient partitioning of the cow? Um, well, you know, we haven't done a two-year feeding study. Palmitic you know? acid, excuse me. Yeah, palmitic acid. Okay. Um, so I think I know where, where some people have claimed that cows fed palmitic acid lose body weight um, across the lactation. That's, we, we don't see that in any of our research. I mean, I, I did show you some research where feeding a high palmitic acid krill in a fresh cow, they lost some, they lost a bit more body weight than control. But over a 10-week period, they also gave four and a half kilos more energy-corrected milk. And after that fresh period, when they moved on to the high diet, they started gaining body weight, and they were pretty much back up to similar body weights um, to the control cows in that study. Um, in that study, those papers will be published soon. Uh, we actually have an energy balance measurements, which not many people do. Most people just do predictions, but we have actually actually have energy balance measurements there. And those cows on the fed the palmitic in the fresh period, they return to positive energy balance about the same time as the control cow. Um, once those cows go into positive energy balance, we have a large number of studies that show that feeding palmitic acid, we consistently increase energy corrected milk yield, mostly through milk fat. Um, sometimes you get a protein yield response. Um, those cows are gaining body weight. Um, typically, they don't gain... Any, any less than the control cows. They don't typically gain more body weight. Um, so I think over a two-year period, you know, if you're managing those cows well, um, you shouldn't see any negative effects on nutrient partitioning. In fact, I think you'd, you'd see some beneficial effects in terms of um, milk production and then, uh, you know, man managing the, the body condition of those cows. But I think I think you'd see those consistent benefits. Like I said, that 10-week study, after one week, they were up about four and a half kilos, and they maintained that energy-corrected milk difference for that entire 10 weeks of that period. And I think I, I showed you today that the multi-parous cows on that study, they were, they were milking nearly seven kilos more. They were gaining exactly the same amount of body weight in terms of kilograms per day as the control cow. And actually, the, the heifers, the, the premium-parous cows, they were milking about two and a half kilos more and actually gaining more body weight than the control cow. Um, so if anyone starts, if anyone talks about long-term palmitic acid feeding cows losing body weight, I'd like I'd ask to see the data because I'm not aware of that data. Okay, um, I'm going to do one more question and then we'll go back to Paula. She has quite a stockpile. Um, this is from Harry Bristol. Do you see a cut point in amount of supplementation supplemental fat? Um, it doesn't make much difference if it's high palmitic or steric. For example, 1.5% of 50 pounds dry matter intake is 0.75 pounds fat. If that were only 1% of 50 pounds DMI, that's 0.5 pounds for fresher cow, for fresh cows, fresher cows especially. And you can see his, his numbers more readily in the, the question window. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, okay. Um, I, I always think about this as a percent of diet dry matter. That's how I've always uh, looked at this and how we've, we've done this because, you know, in, every single cow is going to have a different intake and that intake is going to 
differ every single day for that cow. Um, so I'm typically telling people at the moment I would aim between one, one and a half percent dry matter. I don't think a percentage of dry matter of the supplement or, or the supplement blends. I probably wouldn't go higher. Um, and I think that, and that's where we've seen beneficial effects, whether it's in a fresh cow feeding study or in a post-peak cow, in a high-producing cow post-peak. Um, and then, you know, because then it's about delivering those nutrients in, in, in balance. Um, so whether the cow's eating 50 pounds or is eating 55 pounds. I, I tend to think of it on that, on that percent dry matter. Of course, that's an interesting research question, you know, that maybe should be looked at in the future is, you know, if the cows are eating a, quarter, a third less dry matter in the first period, can we give them more, feed a higher fat diet? And I don't have the answer to that right now. But at the moment, I would be thinking about, you know, one and a half, one, one and a half percent dry matter across different types of diets. Okay, thank you. Um, Paula, do you want to go ahead and ask a bunch of your questions? And unless I see more questions, you, you're the show now. Okay, perfect. Uh, a question from Ariel. Why, do, why did you talk about unsaturated fatty acids like oleic acid and you didn't work with linoleic acid? Hmm. Why didn't I? Um, Well, first, well, there's a number of different reasons. Uh, first of all, there aren't really um, many available, um, drug, you know, sap, uh, fat supplements available that are linoleic acid rich. Um, you know, the majority of commercially available fat supplements are either a palmitic oleic salt, a palmitic syrup krill, or a high palmitic krill. So, and they they were the ones we focused on. And as I talked about earlier. Um, also, styrix, the major um, fatty acid coming out the rumen, and then palmitic and oleic are predominant fatty acids in adipose tissue. Um, certainly, here in North America, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion right now that there's plenty of linoleic acid in the cow's diet. Uh, I mean, a lot of it's biohydrogenated, but when you look at plasma lipid um, scores, there's a um, there's a lot of linoleic acid in there. So uh, I, I'm yet to see some research there about um, supplying more linoleic acid. Um, certainly, I would like to look at the omega-free fatty acids going forward, particularly EPA and DHA, um, from the possible effects they may have on production health, reproduction, and uh, but uh, it's hard to do all of these different things at at the same time. Um, and we, you know, I think we. That's somewhere I personally would like to go in the future, but uh, there's a lot of things as well we're trying to work out still with some of this palmitic steric linoleic acid story. But right now I'm not sure I see the linoleic acid thing going forward more, but maybe more the omega-3 fatty acid. Okay. And another question from Dagoberto. Do you have any data about uh, studies considering fatty acid supplementation in grazing cows? specifically comparing different types of pastures, high and low land pastures? Um, I've not done any myself, but my um, former PhD student, uh, Jonas D'Souza, who did his undergrad and master's in Brazil, 
It's just published a couple very good papers uh, with um, Santos um, there in San Paolo looking at uh, different fat supplements in pasture situations and uh, and get with, with a, with a ca- couple different types of calcium salt papers. So I, I, I would... Uh, I would I would look at those. I think uh, that they would give some good information for you know those more sort of tropical uh, climates and with some of those pasture situations. Um, and if I recall, they saw some good effects in that early lactation cow, and then they saw some long long term effects with them as well. In terms of highland and lowland pastures, um, I think a lot of it would come down to the, the quality of the pastures. Um, you know, whenever you're feeding any fat, particularly unsaturated fat, you need to make sure you, you've got plenty of physical effective fiber in there. Uh, some of these pastures, you know, if they're very lush, very fresh pastures, they can be very high fat. You have to be careful of the high passive rate, high fat. Um, and then the opposite, of course, if they're very mature pastures, that they're probably not going to have a great feed value, but they may have some good uh, room and buffering. But, um, if someone wanted to drop me an email, I could certainly, um, Paolo, I could certainly send those papers there. I think they were just published in Journal of Dairy Science uh, last year. Perfect. That would be great. Next question is uh, from Adrian. Which was the level of fatty acids of the control diets in the experiments you showed us? Uh, well, it would vary a little bit, but on average, I'd say we were probably around between 2 and 3% dietary fatty acids in our controls. And then we would be going up to maybe uh, 3.5 to 4.5. Um, the study I would have showed where we had the high and low quantity, we would have got up closer to 6% in some of those studies. But uh, most of our diets here in, in the Midwest would typically be running around 2, 2.5, two maybe up to 3% dietary fatty acids if, if you've not got any high-fat sources in the diet. Perfect. Uh, next question from Dagoberto. Considering that in the studies, the diets have been concentrated in palmitic and oleic acid, do those studies focus more in palm or soy oil? Please tell us something about the relationship between costs and results and benefits. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I well, so I'm, I'm not sure I understand a bit about the soy oil. I mean, so I, want, I think I know where you're coming from. I know a lot of the calcium salts in South America are based on soybean oil. When I talk about a calcium salt here, I'm talking about calcium salts of palm oil. So they are about, uh, let's say about 45-50% palmitic acid, uh, typically close to 40% oleic acid. They're not I'm not talking about calcium salts or soybean oil. Uh, in terms of the economics, I tend to turn that back to the nutritionist because if I did an economic evaluation today, it's going to be different tomorrow. Um, so I like to give the, give the data there and then people to put that into their own, um, you know, milk pricing schemes and diet, diet schemes. Um, I, I have done some of that recently. Um, for example, some of that, um, long-term studies, um, and, and it was pretty favorable, um, not very, very favorable. Um, I can tell you right now, because I just submitted a grant recently, that in, the, in, the, in, the, in Michigan here right now, 
if if we could increase uh, knockback percent by two point two by two percentage units, so if we went from a three six to a three eight, that's nearly sixty cents a hundred weight more in milk price. So you know, there's there's some there's some good gains that I think can be achieved here. But you know, it's hard for me to give that. Uh, economic analysis of what the results may look like if it's in Brazil or Argentina or wherever like that. Great. Another question, which is your recommendation on the use of fat during prepartum? Which would be your recommended strategy? Um, I'm not sure I have a recommendation uh, prepartum. There's been some research that looks at that. I mean, in general, there's, you know, it's not a huge amount of research looking too much at fats in the in the close-up period. But at the moment, I'm not sure whether I would suggest or see the need for feeding one of these supplements um, before calving. Um, you know, certainly from calving, I think our data is really changing people's um, opinions of um, fat supplementation in that first now. You know, it's been it's been uh, people have often been uh, scared away from feeding fat fat supplements in the fresh cow. But at the moment, I don't, I don't. I personally don't have any data to support why I would go in with some of these blends blends before calving. And overall, I think you know there isn't that much data that would support you know feeding the different types of fats in the, in the pre fresh um, before calving group. Okay, Paula, I'm going to give you a very brief break. I have a question. Okay. Um, what do you think about the future of palmitic acid supplementation considering consumers and environmental issues? That's a good question. I could say that about pretty much anything we probably feed the dairy cow. Um, I mean, the dairy cow, the dairy industry, we rely on um, byproducts, co-products, waste products from a lot of different sources and uh, you know these high palmitic acid streams I, I don't think they're a you know you know if there was a let me let me get my catch my thought there these high palmitic streams are coming into our industry because they're not going into some of the others um, you know when I think about some of the sustainability of this I mean that, that that's a that's a big open-ended question what we mean about sustainability there I mean um I've only been to Malaysia once, but I realise that the deforestation can be an issue. It's certainly an issue. But once you have palm palm plants planted and they're yielding crops a few times a year and then are, are yielding for 30 years, um, I, I sure see how that's less sustainable than growing soybeans or, or something like that. Um, you know, I know I'm aware there's a lots of um, you know international standards now for palm oil production. And some of those different things. Um, so I'm not sure I see that. You know, I don't see us losing that source anymore. Um, you know, in the foreseeable future. I think the first reason we'd probably lose it for is if it started going into a, you know, into a stream that would that that would take it before the dairy industry would have it available to us. Um, so I. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of concerns across sustainability within the dairy industry and within within all of these others. And uh, you know, we have to weigh it all up as a as a balance, and it's hard sometimes to get straight answers on some of these things. Okay, um, Tom, go ahead with your question. 
Yes. So I have another question. Um, so my question is, um, are there anyone actually doing modeling of the absorption process for the fatty acids in the nutrient model? Um, yes, yeah, so that some of the feed models or nutrition models um, have a some degree of a lipid sub-model out there. Um, I'm not really, I'm not a modeler per se myself. Um, with some of this, I think it's hard to model it when we're only just starting to get a good handle on the biology of it. Um, I think the models out there right now can do a good job helping you understand what's your fatty acid intake, whether that's total or individual fatty acids. But uh, I think anything past the intake side, I think there'd be a lot of best guesses in some of those models right now. Um, so I would still propose using the fatty acid intake as a key there. Uh, okay. You know, when we're, if you're thinking about trying to predict what's happening in the rumen, we need to understand rumen pH, passage rate, you know, starch fermentability, a lot of these things to try and understand some of those others. And I think as I showed earlier on, we're even understanding now that simply applying a single digestibility coefficient for, say, stearic acid, probably isn't correct anymore because it's going to depend on how much of that stearic acid is flowing out the rumor. I see. Um, so that, that, it's a challenge. I, I think the intake side, you can get some good measure, get, get, you can get some good help at looking at where stuff's coming in from the diet and different things, but I wouldn't, personally, I'm not sure I'd look at some of those models past, past the diet side. Adam, is that something that um, Tom Jenkins was working on? I, if I remember like a webinar few years ago that um, Tom Taluki was talking about to Tom Jenkins about. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that they, they, he's tried to do some stuff with release the fatty acids, I think, in vitro. Um, Kevin Haar, the team, had an abstract uh, this summer where he was doing a pulse dose into the room and then using a odd chain as a marker. Um, and then there's Mike Allen did some sort of modelling of this, but it, it's just so hard at the moment, I think, because, you know, we have some in vitro data showing that linoleic acid gets converted into different biohydrogenating mediates if you run a culture at a 5.8 pH as opposed to a 6.2. So how, how do we start to try and model some of that can be, can be very challenging. But I think some of these models can be really helpful on that intake side and, you know, where, where are my fatty acids coming from? Which, fat, which sources of feed are supplying these different fatty acids? That, that, that can be a very good part of that. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, Paula, go back at it. Okay. I'm here. Uh, the, this question is from Leo. When you feed DDGS and provoke a milk fat depression, not easily reverted when taking out or reducing these ingredients, what is the cause of this residual effect? <clears throat> well, <laughs> it, it, the old answer, the, the easy answer is it depends. Um, you know, if you're trying to correct a milk fat depression situation, sometimes you may have to change more than just the last ingredient you put in the diet. Um, you know, so with, with distillers grains, for example, they can supply very variable amounts of lipid. Um, if I was trying to correct a distillers grain, if, well, if I thought something was due to distillers grain, milk fat depression, 
I'd be looking at what can I do to reduce the amount of unsaturated fat in the diet so that probably would be pulling out that distillers. But then in that shorter term period, I'll also be saying what can I maybe do to help uh, improve room and pH? And I just alluded to that a minute ago. But can I reduce starch fermentability in the diet? Can I improve, get a bit more forage NDF in the diet to help maintain a higher pH? That both of those will help improve bring milk fat back up. Um, when you get it back up to where you are, I think then you could maybe start to push in a bit more of the more fermented starch. Because you know the last thing you want to do is lose milk. Um, typically, um, but you know sometimes I think you have to do a bigger change in what you would ultimately like, but you kind of have to help kind of kickstart that biohydrogenation back into the into the normal pathways that you want. Great. Mm, this question is from Adrian. In diets with fatty acid supplementation during transition period, uh, did they were fed protected choline, the cows, I mean, making reference to the experiment which evaluated NIFA and body weight variation? Uh, did we feed choline? No. We don't. We, we, did, we, we never fed choline in any of our studies. Um, you know, it, it, when we fed the high palmitic, NIFA was a little bit higher in that first period. But when I talked to our, uh, you know, vet diagnostic lab, none of those cows are in a, at those levels that would trigger a real concern to you. So they're a little bit higher, and they they start to come down by the second week. And in that in our high group period, they were no they were no different to cows not fed palmitic acid. Um, but no, we 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 didn't feed any choline in, in any of our studies. Okay, oh. thanks. I, I have no more questions by now. Okay, and I don't have any questions unless Tom Long has any more questions. I think that, Adam, we can let you go. I, I don't have any other questions. Thank you. I, I have one more, the last <laughs> one from Ariel. Sorry. No, go ahead. Why do you think that in the fresh cows, the fat supplementation does not uh, lower the intake that is um, contradicting the theory the the hot theory from Allen no um, our data with the higher light blends that would actually support the hot theory um, as you can imagine we've talked about that a few times here um, because plasma NIFA was lower, plasma insulin was higher, so we had low, with lower NIFA going into the liver, um, I don't think we were triggering hepatic um, oxidation as much because there's less NIFA there, and that's probably one of the reasons which allowed those cows to eat more. Um, but of course, the dogma out there is that when you feed fat, or particularly when you feed calcium salts, that you lower feed intake. You know. We've only seen that in a couple studies where we fed a straight calcium salt in mid and late lactation, in mid lactation cows. Um, and they dropped about half a kilo in both those studies, but they still gave more milk, gained more body weight, which doesn't bother me. Um, well, I think what may be key in our studies is we're not going to that higher oleic acid, but we're only going up to a maximum of 30% oleic acid. Um, you know, so I, I'm of the belief that, you know, one of the things with a calcium salt, for example, if you lower intake, is because you're probably getting some signaling from some of the unsaturated fats in the small intestine. But we've just come back on that a little bit, and with 
you know, none of our studies when we fed up to 30% alert, we've never seen a drop in intake. Now, that increase in intake we saw in that fresh cow study, we're doing a follow-up study now to, um, to, to see that because that's quite a, I think game change may be too big of a word, but it, that, that could be a, that could be a big thing. If you can stimulate more intake by lowering, by reducing NEFA, um, if you can stimulate more intake, um, get more milk, and lose less body weight, that's a pretty nice situation to potentially be. Okay? Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Paula, are you all set? Yes, I'm done. Thank you very much, Dr. Locke. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank thank you. you very much, too. It's fun time. Yes. Yeah, and thank you all, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, especially, Dr. Locke. Um, and we'll get all this recorded. Dr. Locke, if you will, send links to those papers. And when I send out the, um, when I send out the email that tells people the recordings available, I will include those in that. Okay, I'll put the past year profitable one. Okay, yeah. Yes. Very good. Thank you, everybody. All right. Yep. Have a good evening. And we'll see you maybe tomorrow and next next month. So bye, everybody. Bye.